Beyond the Veil. Today we're discussing Sorcerer's Stone Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass. My name's Rebecca. And I'm Madison. So what happened in this chapter is Harry is living with the Dursleys after 10 years and it's Dudley's birthday and he is very mad about his presence and they go to the zoo and Harry speaks parcel tongue and then the snake breaks out and Harry is banished to his cupboard for eternity. <laughs> light, light reading this yeah, chapter. <laughs> just some nice, fun childhood memories. Oh, yes. <laughs> Overall, I was, <laughs> was much more depressed by this chapter than I anticipated. I think this is a really dark beginning for a book. Yeah, I think that, I think maybe it's, it's intentional because, like, it's supposed to show the contrast of, like, how great Hogwarts is, but it's still just, like, we don't know about Hogwarts yet, so it's very, it's very, very sad. <laughs> yeah, we have somebody enduring something horrible and just, you know, someone who's young and powerless, and this is a... It's just, it's hard to witness for a lot of different reasons. It's hard to experience it, especially with more knowledge than I had when I was younger reading it. When you're more cognizant of exactly what's going on, I think it's a lot more like, oh my God, this is a very bad situation that you don't, it doesn't quite hit the same when you're seven, you know? <laughs> right. Cause you just kind of expect expect like bad characters and whatnot it's just like oh yeah it's just because it's his mean uncle and blah 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 but it's 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 so much more serious than than it's portrayed as yeah so our first segment is patronus fuel and this is just something from the text that we love and that made us happy in the book um, we had the same patronus fuel for this part because there weren't a lot of super happy moments <laughs> no there were very very few if any <laughs> But um, I actually had to go back and, and like look at it again to be like, what what is that? What actually made me happy for this chapter? Mm -hmm. And the answer is animals. Yes. <laughs> um, animals. <laughs> Harry, the Brazilian boa constrictor. Just I can think of so many times I've been. I don't know. You're like at the aquarium and you sit and you watch the moon jellyfish and you're like, okay. I'm feeling better now. Like there's a real connection between animals and mental health. And I love seeing that represented in the text. Yeah. Also, I love moon jelly. So I really like that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I just, I really liked that, especially because we do see like the extreme emotional neglect that Harry went through in this chapter. And like one of the things with having that as a child is that it makes it a lot harder to find connections with people and it makes it really hard to like form relationships so for him to just be like at the zoo and just like find a snake that he's just like all right yeah I totally empathize with you and I connect with you is like it's really nice to see that he's mm -hmm. able to do that I mean I don't know if it's necessarily like realistic but like he's talking to snakes so it doesn't have to be realistic <laughs> <laughs> right exactly um and it's nice to see him just like you know finding a creature that makes him feel better and makes him feel understood hmm. you know I wonder how much um, I wonder how much this kind of connection can influence his uh, relationship with Hagrid in the future where you know 
it makes sense to Harry why Hagrid would connect with animals so much because he's kind of had the same experience. I bet Hagrid was just like thrilled to learn that Harry could talk to snakes. <laughs> right? <laughs> just like, oh my gosh, I have so many ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to, I can't go by without snakes have always been represented as sneaky and evil and uh it's just really nice to see a snake having a redemption arc here and the worst it doing is snapping playfully at people's heels as it runs off slithers off into the sunset so (laughs) i love that i mean she does later go on to like you know come up with slytherin who are just like the epitome of all things people say are bad about snakes but Yes. But she at least gives you both ends of it. <laughs> exactly. You don't you don't always get not, to see it. Yeah, not all snakes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now we move into Enchantingly Nasty, where we talk about something that we found deeply frustrating from within the text. We could go on for a long time here, but we're gonna try and keep it, you know. <laughs> keep it Keep off of our soapboxes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things here. Yeah, um, I think maybe we can start with something that is just coming back from the first chapter, which is the net comments again. Yep. So we literally just got over that in the last thing, and I was just like, that's such a weird way to introduce the Dursleys. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, at least we're done with that. And then it's chapter two. We got to talk about Dudley's neck. I'm like, why? Yeah. So we have um, Vernon has too much neck because that's a thing that you can have apparently. Right. And then um, Virginia has too long of a neck, which is also ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then now her way of saying that Dudley looks like Vernon is to say that they both have fat necks is like the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And mm-hmm. just like This is a child, and it's also a child who has, like, I mean, not in the same way as Harry, but he does have kind of emotional neglect because he's just being, his emotions are not being responded to in a normal way, so it's going to be really difficult for him later on. Mm -hmm. And that having, like, you know, weird emotional upbringings can cause, like, issues with, like, body image and stuff, and, like, to just be fat-shaming an 11-year-old or, you know, 10-year-old or whatever Dudley is, is not cool. No, and it's just like, and, and I don't, I don't understand that like a lot of the stuff that we say about Dudley is supposed to be coming from Harry, and it's supposed to be like, oh, Harry still has a sense of humor, and he's being snarky, and he's being punchy, and he's got all these things. Um, but like, it's still weird, like as an adult to read it as something that was written by another adult. It's a little yeah uncomfortable for me. It is, and it you know, a lot of these things, it just comes for me, it always comes down to that. It didn't have to be this way. There are Harry's not a, I don't know. I don't think Harry's particularly shallow. He's a very insightful child and I would not hesitate to believe him, you know, kind of making jokes about his family that didn't have to do with their appearance and wouldn't potentially make people who were reading the book feel uncomfortable about their own appearances. Right, because, like, we talk about um, how Dudley's, like, favorite game is, is, like, chasing Harry or something or hitting Harry. And that's, you know, that's a very easy way to portray, like, Dudley being a terrible kid. But, like, saying that 
you know, he's, he looks like a gorilla is not, um, not an okay way to say that he's a bad kid. Like it's kind of a super horrifying way to say that. Right. I wanted a lot better for Dudley in this chapter. And it was really frustrating to see Dudley kind of lumped into the same caricatures as Petunia and Vernon. And, you know, then you have these like, they're almost cartoon-like and obviously like everyone's experience of abuse is going to be different and all abusers are not the same, but I found this to be, um, I don't know, this, this felt like a lot of stereotypes, which doesn't mean that that's not something that people can experience, but I, I guess I found myself wishing for a little more subtlety, um, because these stereotypes of abusers as people who are loud and nasty and uh, nobody likes them and, you know, we should ridicule their appearances. It kind of hides the fact that abuse is really insidious and a lot of times comes from people who are well-liked by others. And uh, it's, it's sneaky. And this doesn't feel sneaky at all. This feels like oh, it's natural that these people are like this. I mean, look at them. Look how, you know, the author, the narrator is telling us how weird they look. So obviously they're bad. And I I think that the connection of somebody's actions to their appearance, particularly when it comes to characters who are doing things that are really problematic, is really a harmful thing for anybody to read about because a very long list of reasons. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like so much deeper and more serious than we than we're supposed to see it as just cuz like it's such a quick chapter and it's just supposed to be like this background information, but like it's it's just wild that this like really not okay stuff is just supposed to be background information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so to go off kind of related to the body shaming, actually pretty related to the body shaming, um, whenever Dudley's looking at his presents and stuff, then Harry wonders why Dudley would want a racing bike because Dudley is fat and hates exercise. Which, first of all, as someone who has literally has exercise intolerance as part of my heart condition, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I hate exercise. I can't do it. It's, like, physically painful for me. Yeah. However... Reclined bikes are one of the few things I can actually use. And, like, riding bikes is way easier than running and walking for me. So Mm. to say that, like, a kid who's, like, you know, fat and hates exercise shouldn't want a racing bike is super, super dumb. But then not even, like, a sentence or two later, then we describe Harry as, like, someone that you wouldn't expect to be fast because he's small and skinny. So, like, she's saying that, Dudley is too fat and hates exercise too much to ride a bike and Harry is too thin and too small to look like he can run fast so like (laughs) who is allowed to exercise in the wizarding world like what is going on Uh, like we're just supposed to have these kids who are just like born like buff and like (laughs) ready to like go out and exercise like it makes no sense (laughs) to come out ready for the Arnold competition ready to go (laughs) that's the only way if you don't come out little baby Hercules (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh my god. That is that is such a 
What a funny observation. There's no, <laughs> and this is, this connects so much to like just the erasure of, you know, the fact that like the average size in America is there, there's like this whole like medium sized group of people that are always just, it's like they don't exist. There's yeah. no medium. It's either you are skinny or you are fat and it's just so much more complicated than that. I could bang my head against the door right now. <laughs> it's like the world is like built for those people that are medium and yet there's no actual medium people. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> okay, so our next segment is Akio Fandom. So we're going to introduce um, in this segment either fan art, fan fiction, or podcasts from people that kind of address some of the issues that we have found in the chapter that we're reading. Booyah. And yeah. you did, you found some amazing fix this time. So please Thanks. let everyone know all the amazingness. Yes. So I found the first one is called Two Dads. And I thought it was going to be gay, but it wasn't gay. So that was kind of sad. But that's oh. fine. Uh, <laughs> need more <laughs> gay. Like a Harry Potter thing called Two Dads. Like, obviously, I know where that's going. I didn't. It was different. Okay. Um, <laughs> Alas. <laughs> Alas. It was still really, really cute. So it ended up being, um, I mean, it, it didn't take place in this chapter, but it does kind of address some of the stuff of like, where Dudley deserved better. Mm. Um, so in this chapter, or in this fic, it um, is after the series has happened and it goes to talk about Dudley writing a letter to Harry about his child that he had and how he thinks his kid is magical and he says please Harry come visit me because I don't know what to do (laughs) um (laughs) um, his kid's name is David and he's just like this kid's a really good kid I don't know how to keep him safe and just help me out and so Harry comes to visit and he watches them play, the little kids play soccer, and he's like, yep, that kid's magical, because he's making some real ridiculous, like, goal saves. <laughs> it's just, like, not even, not even hiding it. <laughs> and, um, Amazing. Really cute. Um, and Dudley's just, like, super anxious, and he's just like, I don't know. And then this woman who's watching is just like, that kid's the luckiest kid I ever saw, and just all grumpy. And Dudley's like, oh, no. <laughs> she's gonna find out (laughs) she's gonna find out and Harry's like wow some great reflexes huh (laughs) (laughs) alright so after that that, um, Dudley like admitted that he was like a punk and he was just like I had this whole fight with mom like whenever I asked how to get a hold of you but like I told her if she ever wanted to see the grandkids she's gonna tell me how to get a hold of you because I want I want to do better for these kids Hmm. and it's just really sweet and then like Harry ends up inviting him over to bring the family over for dinner and then like the kid runs up and they he um Dudley introduces him to Harry and it's just like this really pure like post Harry Potter story of like you know them getting together and and having a family like cute family together without mm. it being you know like super stupid and naming your children Albus Severus <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> so I liked it and I liked like the redemption for Dudley yes we needed more of that I'm happy to hear that it's in a 
cute fic like that. Yes, it can exist in our minds and our hearts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so the other fic that I found is actually, um, it does go more into relevancy with this chapter specifically. And this fic is called, our fic is called um, Dudley Dursley and the Boy Who Lived. And mm. it, um, it's more like of what if Dudley had magic so even before we get to that point of like either from finding out about you know necessarily like going to Hogwarts or anything um it has Harry saving Dudley from Snake on the playground which is cute and like I think Dudley probably would have been fine but still (laughs) Um, (laughs) after that Dudley is just like way nicer to Harry and he protects Harry from like bullies and stuff and they end up being really good friends but um Dudley is like getting really aggressive with a lot of the the kids at school who are making fun of Harry which like obviously we know that Dudley has a history of being like aggressive and Mm -hmm. a bit of a bully at school um but in this fic that winds up with him going to see a school counselor and like that's everything i ever needed um but even beyond that we also get to see him like he gets diagnosed with dyslexia Mm. which i love because there's a part in this chapter that um has him trying to like count like the amount of presents that he would have if they added two um, which is supposed to just be kind of like funny, like, oh, uh, uh, deadly stupid. But dyscalculia is the thing <laughs> that I yeah. have. And I have dyscalculia and I didn't get diagnosed with it until like senior year in high school when it was like a useless diagnosis to me anyway. But mm. um, if I had gotten diagnosed with it younger, it basically um, is actually called dyscalculia, but I think that that sounds pretentious, so I call it dyscalculia. <laughs> um, <laughs> But technically, it's dyscalculia, and it literally translates to can't count, which is why I think it's the dumbest thing that it sounds so pretentious, because it literally just uh, means can't count. <laughs> I- <laughs> so anyway, I love that this just has, like, these, like, really nice, genuine explanations for, like, what's going on with Dudley, of just, like, you know, he does have problems with aggression, so let's put him in with a counselor. And he mm-hmm. does have, like, maybe a learning disability, so let's, like, you know, address that and make sure that he's getting like the accommodations he needs for that and it's just so good and then Dudley ends up having magic too which just like I mean it it makes it a little harder for him with with Vernon and stuff and and everything but um I just like it's really nice especially like with the last episode we kind of talked about like how great it would be if if Dudley had gotten to be a brother for Harry yeah and I think that it was really nice to see them like actually getting to be family together Mm. because that's something that is just so not even on the table for harry as he's growing up in this chapter and and it's just really sad (laughs) yeah what a i love the idea of them being a family together even like you know in in the environment creating an environment where dudley has magic too opens up such an interesting place for Dudley to explore how he's similar to Harry and his own weirdness and the Dursleys you know their obsession with being normal and not weird yeah and what what a lovely what a lovely uh, uh scenario to give these characters 
some joy that they de- they deserve. It's just, yeah, I mean, like, it's really nice to see, like, them actually getting, like, actually recognizing the things that are wrong and actually, like, working to, like, better themselves and stuff. It's, yeah. It's very nice and it's very far from what we actually get and that's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Our next segment is the Department of Social Justice, where we will talk about social justice, identity politics, current events, and more as they relate to issues in this chapter. Another place where we could probably stand on soapboxes for quite a while. (laughs) I have like five soapboxes lined up. (laughs) (laughs) I'll start with mine because I'm excited to hear what you have to say. (laughs) I am very frustrated with Mrs. Fig. I know at this point, we as the reader don't know that Mrs. Fig knows more about Harry than she lets on. She is a squib agent from Dumbledore to keep an eye on him. And she, regardless of, you know, being told to what to do by Dumbledore or, you know, whatever is going on, she should have been such a better resource for Harry, who is a child experiencing extreme abuse. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you have somebody who's watching out for Harry, right? Like, this is what you find out in Order of the Phoenix, that Mrs. Fig was there, and she was aware what the Dursleys were doing, and she was supposed to make sure, you know, it wasn't getting too bad, and that he was okay and not being starved. And, I mean, first of all, why was Dumbledore not participating in that himself if he was the one who decided to put Harry in this care? Especially because Dumbledore easily also could have babysat him and showed him pictures of cats for a few hours. Exactly. <laughs> he would have had... How great. How cute. <laughs> would have been... Well, who doesn't want that? <laughs> Honestly, just to like, have some stale cake and here are some cats. That sounds like the afternoon of my life. That I mean, sounds- it sounds like every time he goes to visit Hagrid, it's basically the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> Steal cake and animals. Like I'm just I I don't like any caregiver, you know, like if you're in a position of power, like if you're an adult and you have some kind of, you know, relationship with a child maybe you're a teacher maybe you're a neighbor maybe you're a friend family member whatever i don't like the idea that a caregiver of any kind can witness abuse and you know allow children to endure endure these any kind of abuse and i know that it's complicated and there are sometimes you're not sure if you should intervene or if it would be the safest thing But Mrs. Fig was an agent of Dumbledore, could have communicated with Dumbledore, as far as I know. And I just, I think that there was a responsibility here that was not fulfilled. And that is my soapbox. Okay. So that's all fair. However, I think there's an argument that Miss Fig was not intended to be an agent of Dumbledore. Okay. And that Jake Carrot just made it up later on. And I think that's totally fair, and authors totally have the right to make things up later on. Mm -hmm. Totally valid. However, we know in the series that we're told that Madame Pomfrey can mend bones in an instant, right? Mm -hmm. And yet Mrs. Fig can't watch Harry because she broke her leg. 
And later on, I'm getting a little ahead of myself in the book, but later on, we're told that she's still on crutches. So either, there's a few options here, either J.K.R. never intended Miss Vig at this point to be an agent of Albus Dumbledore. She came up with this later on, and she's being written as a muggle right now. Or Miss Fig did break her leg, was intended to be, you know, Squib, and for some reason has no access to healthcare, which is very sad. Oh my god. <laughs> or the third option is that for some reason Mrs. Fig pretended to break her leg <laughs> for an extended period of time. <laughs> <laughs> I like this conspiracy rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. So I don't know which one of those is true, but one of them is true. <laughs> I feel like squib access to healthcare is a whole tangent that we could go right? on and question what kind of access somebody like Mrs. Fig, who is connected to the magical world, why wouldn't she have access to that? That's a really good question. Yeah. So it's entirely possible that maybe she just like was watching out for Harry and she wanted him to be able to go to the stupid Dudley. <laughs> and so she pretended to break her leg. And then as <laughs> to not draw suspicion, just used crutches for a few months. Yeah. But like, it seems a little extra for a background character. Maybe. But... She's like the random NPC in a game where you're just like, what are you doing? <laughs> She's like the my cabbages person from Avatar. <laughs> yes. Her house even smells like cabbages, so <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> um, but then I also think it's just possible that you know she wasn't intended to be watching out for Harry, and that J.K.R. made that up later on. Totally, totally, and that's one of the problems with writing a massive series of books. Right. And I, I, I think it's fair. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fault her for that. I think it's it's the smallest plot hole of the plot holes we've come across. So Totally. And if if that is the case, then it is different. It is still I still find it sad with Because someone should have been watching out for him. Even if they should have been. And yeah. it's it's tied up with my own bitterness about my own experiences and I just I wish that I don't know. I wish that the world were not so shitty. That's what I wish. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) I think that also um, ties kind of in with one of my things for this segment, which was that um, Harry mentions that he's been in this, in the spider infested cupboard for 10 years. And like, I think that's something that we, we all knew watching the series and reading the series is that he was in that cupboard for, you know, his whole life. But like, was he really in there, like, as a baby? Like, mm. as a toddler? Like, because mm-hmm. we know that Dumbledore knows he was in that cupboard. Because that's where his letter is addressed to. And yeah. unless Dumbledore just really didn't check in on him until he was 11, which seems really unlikely, then we know that, that then we're assuming that Dumbledore knew that he was in that cupboard. And, like, I don't understand how you could watch, like, a four or five-year-old be in a tiny little cupboard surrounded by, like, bugs and stuff and just be like, well, at least he doesn't have a big head. <laughs> <laughs> He's not arrogant, so He's everything's arrogant. going to plan. <laughs> like, I just, it's its horrifying because that's thats literally, like, that's what happened with Tom Riddle. <laughs> he yes. was literally in, in this horrible, like, orphanage as a kid with no love whatsoever. And it 
I mean, I don't want to say it made him into Voldemort, but, like, it kind of is, like, probably a main reason, because being deprived of, like, love and affection and emotional support and, like, any form of validation whatsoever is, like, just raising somebody to not have a, a, a high level of empathy or sympathy. Like, it'll be so hard for someone who went through that to be able to, like, empathize with people and connect with people. Mm, but so I don't understand why he just was like cool with that. <laughs> you know, it's probably because if you live with somebody who shares the same blood as your mother, that means <laughs> there's just some untouchable, unknowable, unbreakable bond of love that is secretly preventing you from becoming a Tom Riddle. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? That sounds that sounds legit. That's the remedy. That's the known cure for having tendencies of uh, loving to make other people like sadistic tendencies. Like that's that that cures you. So it's just wild that he thought that the safest way to keep Harry away from from like Death Eaters and Dumbledore was to make him into or not Dumbledore, sorry, from Death Eaters and Voldemort <laughs> was to turn him into Voldemort. So like that's just it's ridiculous. Yeah, it <laughs> all the different ways. It's so true. And Dumbledore says, "You know, when I tend to be wrong, uh, it's it's usually pretty bad." Like, yep, this was pretty damn bad, Dumbledore. You you, you really messed this one up, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but uh, he's just so deprived from everything, and he's just like treated like he's absolutely nothing. And then like Voldemort knows he. Or, why do I keep mixing up Voldemort and Dumbledore? That's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know that it is though. I feel like we're on the same thing here. Some similarities. There's some, there's something there. Um, but anyway, um, so so yeah, Dumbledore knows that that he's being treated like absolutely nothing, and he knows that he's going to be when he turns eleven thrust into this world where everybody knows who he is. Mm-hmm. Which, like, sounds like one of the most traumatizing experiences to just be, like, literally raised for, like, your entire life, like, all of your developmental years as, like, as just someone who's just absolutely nothing. And then just to be, like, be, like, given crap by, like, Snape and, like, Draco, just like, oh, you're not that cool. And he's like, I know I'm not that cool. (laughs) Right? I spent my whole life believing that. You don't have to tell me. Like, I get it, guys. So, like, I just, ugh. It's just unnecessarily sad. (laughs) It is. He's put into the situation where he can't win, no matter what, because there's the voice from being raised that's like, you are terrible, you're weird, you're awful, you're not enough. And now there's the, you are the one who's meant to save the world and you are the most powerful, magical person that has ever existed. There's there's no way to reconcile those two things. I feel like it's coming out of a lot of the like, oh, little boys all want to be superheroes and they all want to like mm. be like the chosen one. And so I think that maybe that's where this comes from. It's just like, oh, well, this is what kids want. But like, I, I mean, I, I don't think that, I think that that just glosses over a lot of the trauma that would come from this. Yeah, that the idea that 
found finding out that you are special or that you are the chosen one the idea that that somehow undoes the suffering that you experienced up until that point exactly spoiler alert it doesn't <laughs> that's not how that works <laughs> no <laughs> we call petunia shrill so we've already kind of talked about how like discussing all the physical attributes of the dursleys is unnecessary and kind of gross but referring to a woman as shrill is just such bullshit coming from a woman who is just like i am such a feminist i'm the best <laughs> feminist ever look at me feminism and yet you call this woman shrill she's like one of the only two women characters you've introduced in the first two chapters and you're calling her shrill yeah <laughs> which has like this horrible history and i know a lot of people don't understand like the history of this word but like it's been used to like make women feel as if their voices don't need to be heard for centuries like mm -hmm. it's just been constantly used to like tell women that like your voice is greeting like in hold on i have hold on a second ancient greece public female vocality often bore associations with prostitution madness witchcraft and androgyny which oh first of all that's my entire aesthetic but second of all, <laughs> not <cool>. snaps <laughs> isn't that the truth <laughs> right like i mean mood i love it but like in ancient greece that was like a death sentence yeah so like literally for like centuries we've been like saying that women's voices are shrill and that they're too much and that it they just are too outspoken and they need to you know <laughs> they're insubordinate you know that they need, mm -hmm. to, they need to listen to men um and i have like two articles that just go off and tell me but there's all of this history of like in the early 19 like 20s and 30s uh, with radio that um women's voices were considered unintelligible over radio because um, it was too high frequency to like understand and they did studies that like show that the loudness level of men and women was the same but they had decided that like it's just because their voices were too high frequency which made no sense because things like flutes and stuff were totally fine over the radio so for some <laughs> reason we decided <laughs> that women's voices were unintelligible based on the high frequency which has no basis whatsoever in fact so it's literally just based on preference and there's also this like bullshit statistic that they came out with in like in that time where they were just like 99% of people prefer men on the radio over women oh, geez. and it's like you can't just make up statistics guys like this isn't <laughs> this isn't the Trump campaign um, <laughs> um, I think that's like, where the Trump campaign got their ideas probably I think so it was the early 1920s mm -hmm. yeah that sounds about right <laughs> But basically, like, we weren't listening to women in the past because we decided that their voices were too high. And then we also have this, like, and it, it has a huge um, effect in politics, especially if you look at um, after debates, whenever we talk about men in debates, then it's always more about what they're saying and whether they're, like, sound smart or something. And with women, it's always whether they sound, like, um, shrill or whether they sound, like, you know, like they're rehearsed or something like this that mm -hmm. it's always just kind of about how they're talking versus what they're talking about so there's something um like whenever like hillary clinton would laugh or something they would always say that she was like cackling oh, and that she was shrill or shrieking or whatever just because she, and like if there's any sense of emotion then they would 
they would use those words. And yet if there's no emotion in the voice, then we would say that they're rehearsed and that they don't sound like authentic. So we're just like constantly finding these words like shrill to just like excuse ourselves from having to listen to women. And it's, I know that's like way deeper than JKR meant it, but like, it's just, it does have like this horrible history. So yeah, it's, (laughs) it's loaded. It is, is so, so loaded with sexism. And, you know, when you look at the rest of the book series, it's kind of like, you know, there's so much that is, uh, that is also, problematic that you know it's hard to sometimes it's hard when you see those little things when you know it's part of a larger pattern it's like okay where where is the line what is excusable what is an accident what is i mean it's still an accident but what is the result of you know like this unconscious yeah yeah because it's like i mean we we have to recognize that this was written like a while ago when it was written in a, in a different kind of time. Um, but we can't like use that as an excuse of just like, well, it was the nineties. So it was okay back then. And right. like, just because like it was accepted back then doesn't mean it was okay. Yeah. It's, you know, that is such a good point for everything in our past that was egregious just because something was just because something is socially acceptable doesn't mean that it's right. And that's something that we can continue to use to evaluate uh, our present circumstances. Mm-hmm. Went deep on that one. Yes, just that one word. You're taking it back to ancient Greece. I am <laughs> here for it. <laughs> I was like, hold on. I know for a fact this has patriarchal connotations, but let me just pull up some research just to prove it. <laughs> Sources. Sources. I have them. <laughs> I'm glad we got so deep on that because that's because there's so much sexism in these books and I really just want to pull that out of there. So our next segment is Chocolate with Madame Pomfrey. So this is where we imagine mental health care in the wizarding world and how it would help out with the readers and help out with the characters. And we need a lot of it in this chapter. <laughs> Hell yeah, we do. Yes. So we talked a little bit about this whenever I was talking about the second fan fiction that I was talking about. Um, mm. In that in that fan fiction, Dudley was getting school counseling for his aggression, and that was incredible. <laughs> yes. It was so good, and it was a good school counselor too. Like I don't know if it was like I mean we didn't get a whole lot of like the actual counseling. We had little bits of it, but we definitely got to see that like it was helping him. And whenever he was getting upset, he was like, "Okay, picture picture her and how she would help," and that was really nice. Hmm. I want I want to see that. I feel like I love seeing anger management, like aggression counseling type stuff, because that's I I don't know. Like it just it feels like that's a really important skill set that a lot of people don't ever receive, and so then you know, like this rage can just transform and metamorphose into so many different kinds of issues and what a great uh, I don't know just great representation of the kinds of different mental health care that you can need and at a young age getting that like mwah, chef's kiss right like can you chef's imagine kiss. if every kid in like elementary middle school who had like problems with aggression was just like instead of so basically what happened in the story was that they noticed that um 
whenever they told his parents that he was getting in fights, the parents were just like, oh, well, Lily could probably deserved it, or good job, Dudley, for defending yourself. So they noticed that um, it wasn't getting handled at home, so they just started mm. sending him into the school counselor. And that is such, like, a great response from the school, I think. Yeah. So that was, it was really great. Man, I'm jelly. I <laughs> wish I'd had that. Right? <laughs> My thoughts were a lot about Dudley. And it's, I mean, it's the same idea, you know, he is such a bully in this chapter. And it is so hard to watch throughout the series how he treats Harry. But it's not, I mean, at this, at this age, you know, at, at this age, it's not his fault. He has been brainwashed and, you know, neglected by his parents. And I just, I wanted someone to whisk both of them away. Like Dudley and Harry get taken away to live with Hagrid. Yes. Dudley becoming like a non-magical gamekeeper, just like a chill muggle, hangs around Hogwarts and goes to school sometimes and hangs out with animals. That would be good for everybody. I just want, I think Dudley, I mean, yeah, either way, but I think if Dudley was magical too, I yes. think they could just had the cutest little cousin sibling duo relationship thing going on. Yeah. And mm. I feel like we were robbed. <laughs> <laughs> we were. I loved you, you had some really great ideas or your the idea about the uh, support group I thought was really awesome. Yeah. So like if all of the muggle parents like Hermione's parents too um and and then like I know the Dursleys would never go, but like how great would it be if they had like a parent support group for for Muggle parents who were sending their kids mm. off to Hogwarts? And because like you can't, you're sending them off to boarding school at like such a young age, and like you yeah. can't really communicate with them except by like tying a letter to a bird's leg, and that's just the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> so like, how stressful would that be? Like you're just not able to talk to your child for a long period of time and you're sending them off to do magic which is like super terrifying and there's like constantly like just looming death at this school <laughs> right like <laughs> they, have, they have a fucking like they got a basilisk they got aragog they got just voldemort popping his fluffy. head in every other day we got yeah we got, i mean i love fluffy but like come on <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> so like it just it would just be it would be pretty scary to have to be a muggle and have your, your kid at the school yeah so support group would be incredible well and maybe through the creation of a support group enough parents would realize hey we have the same issues with this school so why don't we petition the freaking uh the school governors someone could have taken it up to them and been like so we don't appreciate that there is a three-headed dog <laughs> in one of the rooms where my kids could wander because they are curious younglings, perhaps could we find a different solution for whatever the hell the sorcerer's stone is doing at an elementary school? <laughs> Please and thank you. Well, yeah, I know that Hogwarts is the safest place or whatever, but maybe it would be safer for the children if we didn't have things that people would kill to get to lying around. Oh, thinking of the children <laughs> how could it be so silly it's not his concern <laughs> a little more somber subject 
so Harry is spending his like absolute formative year, like all of his formative. <laughs> Harry is spending all of his formative formative years <laughs> being emotionally <laughs> neglected, um, and not just like you know a little bit like what we see in the movies, but like I mean when you really look at this chapter, it's it's like really intense and like the first like the quote in this book says that the first rule of a quiet life with the Dursleys is don't ask questions which I don't know if you've ever been around a child but they ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. like that's all they do and they should be allowed to ask questions because that's how you learn things <laughs> is by asking questions and so for that to be like the first thing he's learned about you know not starting fights with the Dursleys is really really sad and would have like really lifelong effects on him if it wasn't you know like something he was able to work on which we never see him work on that and he turns out fine because you know apparently we don't need therapy here but whatever if we're being realistic (laughs) this isn't something you can just do to a child and expect him Mm -hmm. to be fine um and and then at the end of the, the chapter it says at school harry had no one so he doesn't even have like like a kid who sits next to him that he talks to sometime. He doesn't have somebody on the playground that he plays with from time to time. He has nobody at school. We know he has nobody at home, and we know that he doesn't do anything in between those two things. So he's literally, for the first 10 or 11 years of his life, never talked to somebody who liked him. Yeah. Like, that's that's so much trauma. (laughs) So, like... In these kinds of situations, if we're actually looking at what would have helped him get to the point where he just magically gets to on his own, um, <laughs> he would need family therapy for one, which obviously yeah. the Dursleys would never agree to, but that's what would need to happen. The Dursleys should have had some sort of like, some sort of parenting lesson somewhere along the line, <laughs> like, pre- like a book or something to just like recognize yeah just something of just like you know don't scare your children away from asking questions yeah and then like harry poor little harry first of all at the very least should have been talking to like a school counselor or somebody because if he had absolutely no one at school like somebody should have recognized that and i get that like the others the other students were scared of dudley and like didn't want to hang out with him because of that but like you know there's adults at the school i'm presuming right <laughs> and, and they should be seeing that this kid has absolutely nobody and like trying to do something about it there were so many and this is true in you know not fiction there are so many opportunities for somebody to notice or to step in and it is so sad when that doesn't happen ever and it's especially sad because it's like all so intentional <laughs> Really just, like we're really trying to build up this like poor little or- orphan boy and it's just it's it's so much let's be a little more creative and imagine a you know a scenario where a child does not necessarily have to go through something um as chronic and as traumatic all the time and instead deals with the you know, other chronic traumatic stuff that happened before he even got to the Dursley's place. Right, like, we already had enough of a backstory for him to be, like, sad 
all the time. Like his parents were yeah. murdered. He was almost murdered as a baby. Like, and then we have the whole thing of like thinking that you know his friends betrayed his his parents' friends betrayed them and stuff. Like, yeah. we've got enough tragic backstory already. We don't need to add in ten years of emotional neglect. <laughs> no, we don't. It's, and that's not. Like, obviously, these things happen, and we know that they do, but it just, because we've we've seen this trope, like you said earlier, so many times, all of these different stories in the world have these things, and it's really difficult to, I don't know, it limits your imagination, not just about what fictional worlds can exist, but about yourself, and about what possibilities are for you, and you know, oh, but I haven't had it as, as bad as Harry. So what if I am weak because, you know, he acted like this and I don't act like this and he was able to do this and I'm not able to do this. And that's a There's huge just... issue for a lot of kids who have like depression, and anxiety. And like, yeah, it is so, so common right now for kids to have anxiety and depression. Like, I don't know that I had like a single friend in high school who didn't have anxiety. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. we're all anxious all the time yes. and so that's one of like a major that's a that's a major thing to like it's a what's it called the um intrusive thoughts it's like a, a really common intrusive thought mm. is to think like well my problems aren't as bad as this person's problems so i need to just get over it yeah. um and that's something that like if we if we were exposed to mental health care more and like I honestly think it should be something that's handled a little more publicly in like schools, especially like public schools. Cause like, I mean, obviously we need sex ed, but we should also have mental health ed. <laughs> like yeah. we should have these things of just like letting kids learn about themselves more personally and not just like these abstract lessons of like, this happened to Julius Caesar in blah, blah, blah years ago. And it's like, <laughs> that's great like that teaches a lesson but why can't we learn lessons about like who we are right now right well the act of sharing yourself and talking about your feelings and about your fears about yourself it's another thing that brings people closer together because you know like you said everybody gets anxious a lot of people have anxiety a lot of people have depression and when we find out everyone else around us is feeling these same feelings we feel less alone and more connected mm -hmm. and the world is just better yeah our last segment is into the pensive so here we reflect on kind of what this chapter means to us now and how we can move forward after reading it yeah so i want to go first because i know that yours is a little less depressing than mine so <laughs> Um, so in this chapter, we really are expected to gloss over a lot of the abuse that happens. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. it doesn't, it can't all get blamed on JK or a lot of it can be, but a lot of it also goes on to like publishers and the adults who like, um, read this to us as kids and the adults who like, you know, helped promote this book. Um, because like as kids, we didn't, we didn't know any better. And mm -mm. While it, it, it's a great book and it's a great series and I love it, there's a lot of parts of it that um, that should have been addressed differently, um, especially the abuse that's in this chapter. Uh, so we're mm -hmm. kind of told 
by a lot of these adults when we were kids that, that he had a bad childhood because his mean fat family teased him and they didn't buy him nice things that he wanted. And that's, that's kind of what I remember of the Dursleys whenever I was first being introduced to the series. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't remember it being so deeply, seriously neglectful. I just remembered yeah. it being like, oh yeah, they were mean, haha. Um, and so it's, it, it does go so much deeper than that. And this is like really, really severe emotional neglect and it has severe like side effects and like lifelong like consequences on kids. And, and it's also interesting that, um, I spoke a little bit about it, but like, this isn't a rare literary thing. Like this happens in a lot of like books and movies and plays and things. Cause we have like Cinderella and Oliver Twist and Annie and Jane Eyre where there's all these like sad orphans and even like away from the orphan thing, we have like, um, Matilda and stuff where it's just like, it's supposed mm. to be something that's, that we're supposed to just normalize as children of having these really neglectful families. Um, and that's just so odd because it's such a traumatizing event to lose your family as a child yeah. and it's traumatizing to be treated as worthless as a child um but yet they're in these kids books as something that's supposed to like teach us a lesson and that's that i think as somebody who hadn't been exposed to a lot of like traumatizing events when i was really young I I was able to gloss over it because that's kind of what I was told to do. But like I can't imagine like being a kid who had been through something horrible like that and and reading this and being like basically told that he deserves to be treated like nothing because you know his his parents or his you know his aunt and uncle are doing him a favor by bringing him in or whatever. And so I th- I think that this really opened the chapter in general opened my eyes a little bit to question some of those tropes that we see in a lot of kids in YA fiction because it's it's something that like as a kid I at least thought was really like almost normal but like Mm -hmm. that's like a a really misguided way to look at it such a good point about if you've already been through something really traumatizing like that especially as a kid if you've been through something really traumatizing, especially something like what, you know, like losing your parents or losing your caregivers, losing losing people and having any kind of really major family-related trauma at a young age, how confusing it must be to, even though we're not supposed to agree with the Dursleys and we're not supposed to like them, it's still a confusing message to receive in any capacity. And it is so strange that it continues to be uh, so popular. And so, so like casually brought up. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to know, I mean, it fits with a lot of fairy tales. I'm so I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, deep psychological reason that. Yeah. Because we all like to just watch tragic things. Yeah, we do. We do. And maybe we should be a little more we should question creative. That a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. 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 And for me, given that this chapter was so dark, um, it was hard to kind of find a snippet of something hopeful, I guess, to cling on to. But I thought so much about, you know, the... Um, the boa constrictor and how 
how many happy memories I have in really difficult times of just these little things. Like I can remember I was really sad when I was a kid and we were at an aquarium and I remember staring down at this huge manta ray and it was a really tough time in my life. But that was such this moment of like being in a happy bubble just for a little bit. And Harry has these moments too where, you know, he has these little memories of kind strangers and these little just like light in the dark moments. And going back through these books um, in such a different way than I've read them. I think it's it's been since probably before college since I read them and my perspective on life has changed and I've, you know, become so much more educated on things that these are, it's a lot harder to read these than it was when I was an ignorant little (laughs) child. (laughs) And this is a nice reminder though, these little pieces, these little, you know, Lumos uh, casts, are there in this book, these little moments with the boa constrictor. And we're going to get into much happier times moving forward in the books. But these books can be enjoyed probably without going into total despair. Um, I do believe that, at least for me. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to all the the new little memories of, uh, you know, happiness that we're going to come across when we get further into this book. Yeah. And I, I like that too, because whenever I like think back about the beginning of this book, I only really remembered the scene from them going to the zoo and him talking to the snake and mm. how it was kind of funny that like, you know, like Dudley was mocking him and was like, get out of the way. I want to see it. And he, you know, the glass broke. And that was, that was just like a bit of humor. And I, that's, that's what I remember from the chapter is like that little bit of happiness from it and not all of the really sad other stuff that went on. Yeah. This is a, you know, this is our (laughs) acknowledgement of all of the sad and all of the bad. And at the same time, letting ourselves be complex and enjoying moments of these books without forgetting the issues that we have with them and the really dark stuff, the really difficult uh, aspects of these books that still have a lot of lessons to teach us. We are going to try to promise everybody a much happier episode next week for chapter three. So you heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media, on Instagram and Facebook. We are beyond the veil pod. And on Twitter, we are beyond the veil and, Ooh, yeah. yeah.